Before I get started, I want to say something to you. I am nervous to preach this today, and here's why. I think we have a tendency with this passage that I'm going to get into today. We've heard it so many times, in so many ways, at so many weddings, at so many places, that it, it has become something to us a lot of times that we just switch it off. Oh, yeah, 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 I've heard that already. And we turn it off and we let our minds kind of wander and we miss the power of this passage. Okay? So I'm going to tell you that before we even get started. I want you, I want you to, if you can, in your mind's eye, if you can come to this passage as if you've never read it before, as if you haven't heard a hundred thousand sermons on it that have taken this passage and made it only about marital love, which it is not. All right? That's my, that's my caveat before we get started. Now, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for allowing us to come together to, to hear your voice through Scripture. God, I ask that you would use me, Lord, to speak words of truth to your body, words that are helpful and encouraging, Lord, and even words that are corrective, and that in those places, Lord, that you would be able to speak your word in truth, but also in grace and in love through this vessel. I thank you for it, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. I want to give you a little bit of background. Ooh, wow. I am loud, aren't I? I want to give you a little bit of background before we get into this, because I think the background is what's going to set the stage for really what's being said through this book, all right? A lot of times, if we want to see what message was coming through a certain writing, a certain letter, a certain book in the Scriptures, we have to look at what was going on. What was this addressing? What was going on in the place that this letter was written to at the time it was written? Because there are specific things going on that in that culture actually apply to us today. Listen, there's nothing new under the sun. All right. There is not there are not sins. Our culture is engrossed in today that have not been engrossed that other cultures haven't engrossed themselves in in different ways and manners. All right. Our culture is not the first to be absolutely overrun with sexual sin. It's not the first to be overrun with licentiousness and homosexuality. It's not the first to be overrun with any of those things. It's not the first to be overrun with sex trafficking. It's not the first to be overrun with the things that we see in our culture today. All right? I believe that these two books, First and Second Corinthians, are very, very applicable to the culture that we find ourselves in here in America today because there are so many parallels with the Corinthian culture almost 2,000 years ago now. Let me get, get you started, okay? First of all, Corinth. Corinth was the lap of luxury in the ancient world. It was the city of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of what? Love. The Corinthians were certain they knew what love was. Hey, you could come to Corinth and not be put down, you, not be judged. You could not be... You could, you could come to Corinth, you could involve yourself in anything you wanted to and not worry about somebody speaking evil against you. This is the city of love. I'm sure you've never been in a culture that has that same thought. I'm certain you've never seen that in our culture, huh? Corinth was the city of luxury. 
It was an incredibly wealthy city, and I'm going to show you why here in just a second. It was situated at a, still is, it was situated at an incredible place geographically to be able to acquire wealth. It was a very defensible city. It had a large, basically a mountain that comes up behind it, and they built kind of like two cities. One of them, the, the high mountain, was called the uh, Agora Corinth. That would be the, the high city. And basically what happened is if somebody's going to come in here and they're going to try to attack, uh, you can't really see it in this picture. This is, a, this is a, you know, a painting, a recreation. But this is supposed to be the Agora. See how it's above everything? So if somebody was going to attack you, they had to make a very steep climb, and they had a, a walled fortress at the top. It was a very defensible city. It was also situated very, very well for trade. It was the city of luxury and license. If you were wealthy and you wanted to participate in pleasure and sumptuous fare, you went to Corinth. That was the place to go. It's the city of Aphrodite. Had the temple of Aphrodite. There was at, at one time, there's a, a, there's a historian that says at one time there were about a thousand temple prostitutes all, all working at the same time. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. This same historian was a little bit given to exaggerate here and there. But let's just play it safe and say it was only half that. 500 of the most beautiful girls you could find who were willing to basically give sexual favors to whatever guys came along. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're in a port city and you're in an ancient city where sailors are coming in and they haven't even seen a girl in a couple of months, what do you think's on their mind when they get off that boat? I got news for you. It's not growing in Jesus. Okay. They made a lot of money through that. Corinthian bronze, by the way, was seen as the greatest in the world. They had a way of making bronze that made it actually look like gold. So much like gold that many people couldn't tell the difference without biting it or cutting into it. Why would you bite it? Yeah, gold is soft. Yeah, pure gold is very soft. That's why, you know, the little movies, the pirates bite the gold coin. Arg, because if your teeth sunk into it, it was pure gold. Bronze is not going to do that, right? They had a way. That, so it, the bronze that was made in Corinth was was valued and was um, looked for all over the world. It was it was it was in high demand. They also had the best foods. The pastries were supposedly the best in the entire ancient world. You went to Corinth for luxury, and it became very rich via the sea. Let me show you, if I can here. Maybe not. Nope. Okay, you're gonna have to help me. There we go. Here's where it's situated. It's kind of hard to see right here. Go down. We're going we're gonna to blow this up. Okay, go again. All right, here it is right here. Okay, this is, so you can see this is the Mediterranean, right? Over here is the, whole, the Holy Lands. Like there's some lands that are not owned by the Lord, and so they're not holy. Anyway, let's not get into that. Uh, we're going to blow this up again. Go ahead. Here it is. Here's Corinth. You will notice something. This is basically mainland Greece here, okay? And there's this little tiny land bridge that comes over here to the Peloponnese. This is what was also referred to as Achaia. Um, a little land bridge is known as an isthmus. They were situated at the perfect place. Here's why. Go down again if you would. One more. Yeah. Right here there are two capes. Okay? And these capes were very, very dangerous to sail around. In fact, one of the sayings in the ancient world was, if you go to Cape Malia, uh, abandon all hope. This was supposedly where Odysseus was blown off course, right, in Homer's, uh, uh, Homer's Odyssey. This is where he was blown off course. It took him nine years to get back home. 
this cape was very, very dangerous, and sailors did not want to have to go around it. But you got to get goods to Athens some way. So it was a lot easier to sail from, well, Italy would be like way over here, but Italy or Spain, wherever the, the country was you were coming from, you come in here, and instead of having to go all the way around these really dangerous capes, you just come in here to the port at Corinth. And then you could offload your goods. You could go across the little uh, bridgeway here to Athens, and you could get into mainland um, Greece. And the Corinthians were very, very smart in how they did this. They knew nobody wants to have to sail around this. So they built a, a causeway. If, this is only about four miles wide at the narrowest point. They built a causeway. They built a road. And they cut tracks in the road, and they built these massive carts, these wagons. You could pay a fee and they could take your entire ship out of the water on these carts, go four miles across the land back into this other harbor, and you could continue on your voyage without having to go around these really dangerous waters. Not stupid. But guess what happens? I mean, you're, as you're there, as you are a sailor or whoever's on the ship, as you're there, you're waiting for them to get that thing across. They, they were smart. They didn't take it across as fast as they could, Right? Hey, well, we're going to be delayed for a little bit, so why don't you guys get you some lodgings and stay the night. Listen, anywhere you stay very long, you'll spend money. And they knew it. There were people who stayed there a long time. Sometimes, if you didn't want to pay the fare, some, some sea voyagers, some captains would say, well, we're not going to do it that way. What we're going to do is we're going to offload all of our cargo and most of our men, and we're going to take a skeleton crew, and we're going to sail have them sail all the way around back in and meet us on the other side. And by the way, they do this uh, from either direction. Well, guess what? You're going to be sitting there waiting for a week while your ship comes in the other harbor. And the harbor is only four miles. You could literally walk on land from one harbor to the other in less than an hour. But you can't sail there in less than an hour. So they spent a lot of time there. And because of that, they spent a lot of money. The other thing was they controlled, they dominated trade on the land bridge. They're right there in the middle. So they're charging tolls to people to to move stuff in and out almost every direction. And I'm going to tell you something, that gave a lot of money to the Corinthians. Enough money that they decided, hey, let's build a great sports stadium. They built a whole sports complex just just a, a little a stone's throw from Corinth at a place they called Isthmia, on the Isthmus. The games that were held there were second only to the Olympic Games. People came from miles around. They were held every other year. And guess what? They didn't have motels and hotels like we do today, right? They didn't have the, the accommodations to be able to keep all of these competitors and these different people that would come to watch. And so where did those people stay? They stayed in tents in the surrounding fields. Guess why Paul was working as a tent maker? There were a lot of people that needed tents. It was a very, very good business to be in, okay? Um, Corinth was rich beyond rich, all right? It was the wealthiest city in Greece. It was by far the most dignified city in Greece. Athens might be the place you hear of. Corinth dominated Athens. Athens might have been the capital, but listen, Corinth dominated Athens. Athens might have been the place that you hear about in the uh, because of the war with Sparta and all that stuff. But let me tell you something. Corinth was, it was the crown jewel in Greece. It was the place that had everything you could want. It was very cosmopolitan. It was very uh, metropolitan. 
It was the place where there were a lot of different cultures that came to be. Why? Why would a lot of different cultures be in Corinth? Sailors, man. Bringing goods from all over the world, right? And if those sailors are taking time to, to stop off in Corinth, guess what they're doing? They're talking with people, right? They're debating. It was not a big deal. I mean, Paul coming into Corinth and saying, hey, we've got some philosophy I'd like to talk about. I'd like to talk about this God. That was not an unknown thing in Corinth. A lot of sailors were there. Paul was just wiser about how he did it. Right. Paul knew a lot of people are going to be waiting in line for a long time as they're waiting for their ships to come around or as they're waiting for cargo to be transported or whatever. And he used that opportunity to be able to share the gospel with him. Good for him. He knew if those people get born again, they're going to get back on that ship and guess where they're taking the gospel to all over the world. It was a very strategic place. All right. Second only to the Olympic Games in terms of its size and prestige. It attracted the greatest athletes from all over Greece and a lot of rich fans. It was no different then than it is today. I'm just going to let you know, if you don't have money, you're probably not going to the Olympics. I've never been to the Olympics. Draw what conclusion you will from that. You've got to have enough money to buy the plane tickets, don't you? You've got to have enough money to, to pay for the accommodations and for the food while you're there and all of that stuff, don't you? Right? The, a kid does not grow up in the slum of Harlem going, man, one day we're going to go see the Olympics. It's going to be a lot of fun. Why? I don't have the money. Right? I don't know anybody. I won't go any farther than that, obviously. You've got to have money. So the people that were coming to watch these games, number one, typically they were very, very wealthy. And number two, they had plenty of time on their hands because slaves were working their fields and their vineyards. They had money to spend, and the Corinthians knew it. By the way, at the games, there was only one person that got a prize. At that time, at that point in history, you did not get a, a silver medal for second or a bronze for third. There was two kinds of competitors. There was the guy that won, and there was everybody else. And Paul used that in his writings, didn't he? Hey, look, you've got to train like the guy that's going to win, right? Everybody runs, but only one wins the prize. It's not like the Olympics games today, right? It's not like the track meet today, right? Here's first, here's second, here's third. And by the way, we've got ribbons for fourth, fifth, and sixth out of 20 people. It didn't work that way. At the end of the, the games, if you were one of the winners, you got to go to this big banquet. Only the winners got to come there, right? And by the way, before you um, participated in the games, you went to a place that was a little cave. You basically went underground, and you had to swear this oath that you were, going to, um, you were going to compete according to the rules, and if you didn't, you'd be disqualified. Does Paul make mention of that kind of... Yeah, he uses, he uses those kind of cultural idioms in his own writings. It made it a easy for the people to understand. Oh, yeah, I get... Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. There were no permanent accommodations, and so people stayed in the tents in the surrounding fields. That gave Paul, and of course, Priscilla and Aquila as well, opportunity to apply their trade as tent makers, right? <clears throat> it's where we get the, uh, the idea that maybe God even ordains bivocational ministry. Sure hope so. Because guess what? We're all bivocational. All right. It was cosmopolitan. It was the melting pot. Sailors, travelers, athletes, wealthy pleasure seekers. seekers. Everybody spent time in Corinth. It was the New York or Las Vegas of the ancient world. Here's the other thing. The wealth meant there were some very, very wealthy Christians once Paul got the gospel to him in Corinth and there were some people that were Christians in Corinth that weren't very wealthy right I'm going to tell you something I'm not saying it's right I'm saying this is something you will observe in any culture where there is a lot of money there will be mass stratification everybody in that culture is not going to be rich 
People will figure out a way, whether it is through law, whether it is through just outright thievery, people will figure out a way how to amass a lot of wealth for themselves at the expense of everybody else. Welcome to Human Nature 101. That's called depravity. And the same thing was happening in Corinth. Lots of money. Not everybody had access to it. A lot of people had lots of money and some people didn't have any. And then when they got born again, Paul tells them something crazy. Hey, guess what, pal? You're no better with, you, with all of your money and all of your wealth and all of your privileged social standing than the brother in Christ that has nothing. So don't even come in here and try to play that game. That was causing some strife. Uh, how notorious was Corinth for its immorality? The verb to Corinthianize meant to have an um, illicit sexual encounter with somebody. Uh, we, we met up there and Corinthianized. <laughs> when your city is used as a slang term for illicit immorality, it's, it's a pretty good bet that it, there's a lot of it going on. Uh, throughout Greece, a slang term for a prostitute, especially if she was good looking, she was a Corinthian girl. So Corinth was Paul's last church planning stop on his second missionary journey, probably around A.D. 51. And uh, it's, it's recorded in Acts 16 through 18. We can find it there. He came into the city. He says this, in fear and trembling, he'd been persecuted in Philippi, 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 Berea, Thessalonica. Now he is alone by himself, doesn't have any companions with him, and he's heading into the wild, wild west in his mind. He's heading to Corinth. I mean, this is, Corinth is the, it's the wild west, man. It's by far the most immoral. He thought, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to me here, right? He met Aquila and Priscilla who were Jewish. They'd been basically run out of, of uh, uh, Jerusalem before that because of the edicts that were given. Um, the Roman emperors were getting pretty tired of all the rebellions that were going on. They finally said, that's it. We're running you out of here. We're glad that they left because it wasn't too long after that the place was destroyed and a lot of the Jews were just killed, put to the sword. But they were very, very helpful to Paul. I want you to notice something, though, that happens here because I think it's incredible. It shows the power of the gospel. If you read through Acts, you'll find this. Paul goes into Corinth, and he starts arguing in the temple, right? And he shows from the scriptures, Christ is the Messiah. And many of the Jews believed, including Crispus, who was the head of the synagogue. There was a man who was in charge of the synagogue. He was not the head of the teaching, but he was in charge of the synagogue, and his name was Sosthenes, and he got pretty upset. And a whole bunch of the Jews and Sosthenes got together and said, that's it. We're getting rid of this Paul guy. He's, he's causing people, you know, to, to change their religious views. And we don't like that. That provoked them, the Jews who rejected Paul, to rise up against him. He, they drug him off to the proconsul of Achaia, and they accused him of, quote, persuading men to worship God contrary to their religion. They drag him down before uh, the, the proconsul, right? And what does he say to him? Man, I don't care about this nonsense. If this has something, is this some kind of religious matter? It has to do with your words and your interpretation? I don't care about it. And the Greeks get so mad that these Jews are starting trouble here in Corinth, like they were doing in Jerusalem, that the Greeks seize upon this mob of Jews that had grabbed Paul, and they beat this guy to a pulp. His name was Sosthenes. They beat him bad. And guess what we find in Paul's, by Paul's third missionary voyage? Guess who's in Ephesus with Paul? Sosthenes. Guess who's helping him write the letter to the Corinthians? Sosthenes. The guy who had opposed him, the guy who had helped with this mob, 
Christ has reached down and saved, and now he is an indispensable help to the apostle. I think that should tell us something, the power of the gospel. This guy who is, Paul wasn't the only hater of the gospel that Christ reached down and changed the heart of. Paul got to see a small version. I think that's probably part of why uh, he and Sosthenes were that close. Because Paul could see in Sosthenes exactly what happened to Paul, couldn't he? Here's this guy who's a rancorous hater of the gospel, and Christ changes his heart. That's incredible to me. In, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, we see Sosthenes, our brother. That's something. Paul ministered successfully in Corinth for 18 months before he returned to Antioch. Uh, an important evangelist named Apollos goes to Corinth later and has a very successful ministry there, doing basically the same thing Paul was doing. He's successfully defending Christ from the Scriptures. Later on in his third missionary journey, Paul stopped at the main city in Asia Minor, which was Ephesus, and he stayed there for two to three years. While he was in Ephesus, he got word from one of the Christians in Corinth that some severe problems had developed in the church there. Divisions in the church threatened to break it up, and even worse, immoral behavior was the norm. Not long after that, a delegation from the church at Corinth brought a letter to Paul with numerous questions about important issues. Things like divorce, marriage, idolatry, Christian liberty, women's roles in the church. Spiritual gifts, the resurrection. Paul got this delegation, and they said, you've got to answer some questions. We don't know what to believe. And he said, okay, I'll write. And so he writes his first letter. We think he probably wrote four or more letters to the Corinthian church. We don't have them all. And that's okay. I think that's by the providence of God. Because the Lord divinely inspired some and not others. Guess what? That's his prerogative. But this one was divinely inspired. So I want you to turn with me, knowing all of that. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want you to pretend you've never read this before in your life. I want you to pretend you live in a Corinthian culture. It's not going to be too hard to pretend. Because you do. We have an incredibly Corinthian culture. We are rich beyond our ability to even understand how rich we are. I've heard, I've heard there are some people on earth who are so rich, they don't just have a house. They have little houses that they park cars in. They have little houses just for stuff, just for their belongings, just for lawnmowers and things like that. They don't have to mow their lawns with animals. They're so wealthy, they can buy these big machines and they just put, they put this, this liquid. I'm spitting all over the place. Uh, they put this liquid in it and they can just, uh, they can just run around and, and, and mow their lawns with these machines. And then they put them in these little houses that they build beside their house. They're wealthy. They're wealthy beyond imagination. They have all the comforts that a, a culture could ever dream of. They have sumptuous food. They can buy. They don't have to make it. They can just buy it. They're so wealthy, they don't even have to make their food. They just go buy it. Yeah, we live in a Corinthian culture. We don't realize how wealthy we are beyond imagination to most of the rest of the world. We are wealthy beyond imagination to most people. And you know what we do? Instead of saying, God, thank you so much that you've given me these resources. How can I use them for your kingdom? You know what we do? We whine about not having as much as the next guy. Well, Lord, that guy, he makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Why can't I be like that? Why don't I get the big raise? I deserve it. Why does he deserve it more than me? Look, you don't deserve what you have, and neither do I. And we live in a, in a culture that's very Corinthianized, and we don't even realize it. 
All right, let me read this. Chapter 13 says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'd say that very much encapsulates many of the conversations that we have. Noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge and all faith, even so I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I've gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. The New King James says it this way. It is not self-seeking. We'll come back to that. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Man, maybe I better read that again. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It loves, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it too will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll be fully known, even as I have, I will fully know, sorry, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Yet the greatest of these is love. So now, New King James says it this way. So now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We've heard that said so many times that it has lost its punch on us. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I'm going to dive into this, okay? And here's what I'm going to dive into. We are part of a community that is very, very particular and very stringent about our theology, and we should be. It is right to want to know the ins and outs of theology, to be willing to study, to show ourselves approved, to be willing to to wrestle with the deep, tough parts of Scripture. It's right to do that. But here's the problem that I'm seeing today. When we go to explain that to our neighbor or our family, we go with a baseball bat. You don't believe this? I'm about to bomb you. And look, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me too. See, it's easy for me to think, you know what? When I have this conversation with this person, they're going to reject me anyway. They're going to reject what I'm saying. So you know what? I might as well just come full guns. I might as well just drop the bomb on them. I've got a lot more study in this area. I know that I'm, I'm more prepared for this battle, for this, this apologetic encounter I'm about to get into, and I'm just going to bomb them. And I'm telling you, when we do that, it is not in love. There's a way that you can share truth that does not reflect Christ. Period. And we are guilty of doing that time and again. We're guilty of, I'm going to tell you something, I'm guilty of doing that as a father, as a husband, as a teacher, as a pastor, 
I have done that to people in my care whom Christ has told me to treat with love. You guys know I'm an apologist. That's that's what I got my master's in, right? Theology and apologetics. Now I'm working on a Ph.D., but you know what the, the Bible says? I've got, I've got news for you. The Bible trumps all of those gazillions of books that I've read in my library. The Bible trumps all of those. And this is what the Bible says about apologetic encounters. 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts honor Christ as the Lord and set Him apart as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I'm going to tell you something. We apologists like to stop the verse right there because we don't like the very next part. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. That hurts, man. You know why? Because sarcasm is like one of my spiritual gifts, brother. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's amazing how sarcastic I can be because of the flesh that is on me. But sometimes that sarcasm is not from Christ. And I've got to be willing to put that on the altar. Verse 4 and 5 says this, love is patient and kind. It's not self-seeking. It's patient. Yeah, it's patient. Guess what? Most of you didn't grow up reformed. Most of you didn't grow up believing Calvinism. You know what happened? You probably got in 50 different arguments over years and years and finally got convinced by the truth of the scripture. Did somebody have to be patient with you? They sure had to be patient with me. When I was a pastor in Texas... I was preaching expositorily through the New Testament that year. And we got to the book of Ephesians. And Kelly and Abby were in the church when this happened too. So they can tell you about it, sadly. We get to the book of Ephesians and I start preaching through it. And I get to chapter 1 and I'm like, holy smokes, it looks like it's saying God's doing this alone. And I don't really know what that means, but this is what it looks like the text is saying. And that troubled me. Because I was a pastor, brother. When people come to ask you questions about the scriptures and you go, I don't really know what that means. It will trouble you. So you know what I basically was saying? Hey, I don't know what it means, but I'm going to find out. And you know what I did? I called a couple of friends that I'd had who were up in Oklahoma. Ronnie and Justin, these poor guys, had to put up, I don't know how much they put up with me, but it was a lot. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm struggling through this issue. What do you think? Not knowing, had no idea they were reformed. No clue. Well, here's what it looks like. Yeah, brother, it looks like, uh, looks like it means what it says. And we had some good talks, and I said, I, can't, I cannot accept that on face value. There are just some problems that I have with this theology. And by the way, it was not unconditional um, election that, that bothered me at all. I had no problem with or, uh, limited atonement. I had no problem with limited atonement at all because everybody limits the atonement one way or another. You know what I had a problem with? Once saved, always saved. Don't you tell me that horse nonsense. Hey, I grew up a good Methodist boy. I know better than that. And I called a couple of friends of mine that were pastors that were, and I came up to Oklahoma and kept these guys up. Look, they had jobs. Do you know how, how late I was up with them some nights? Two and three in the morning. They'd go to bed and I, they had a, a DVD that had all the doctrines of grace on it. It was like four hours long. They would go to bed. I would stay in their living room and watch this thing. Literally, I'd go to bed at maybe five or six in the morning. Take a little nap. I'd get in my car. I'd drive back down to Texas. Multiple times we did that. I'd call them up and say, hey, I'm going to come up this weekend. Let's debate. Okay. What are we going to talk about? And I'd give them one doctrine. We're going to talk about, you know, perseverance of the saints. 
Or this time we're going to talk about, you know, irresistible grace. And we would debate it. And you know what? These guys were very patient with me. You know what? There was probably some people in your life that have been patient with you too. And here's what I'm saying. Christ expects you to do the same with others. You know what? We're humans. We don't get it the first time around. Most times. Most of the time we have such a fight with our flesh. When we see truth and it goes against our flesh, it takes us a while to be able to submit. I'm sorry, but that's the truth of human nature. And I'm talking about after you come to Christ, it takes a while. You are not perfect. You have flaws too. And Christ expects you to be patient with those who he's working on as well, right? Boy, it's convicting me if it's not convicting you. Our sinful human nature is reflecting in our being wholeheartedly in love with ourselves. Okay? People who don't know Christ are wholeheartedly in love with themselves. There should be a difference between us. There should be, there should be a willingness to sacrifice of ourselves that is not found in the world. And sadly, a lot of times we bring that nonsense into our way of thinking in the church. We don't want to, we don't want to be self-sacrificing. We want it to be all about us. We want posts and positions in ministry that will make us look good. We want to take the post in the big church. Look, there are a lot of pastors. That's why they change churches. Hey, I had a church and it's got double the salary and they asked me to come preach. And you know what they'll say? Well, the Lord called me to that church. Really? That's what happened? <laughs> you're going to get double the money. You're telling me the Lord called you to that church? Is your Lord mammon? Is that who called you to that church? I'm not saying God didn't call you to that church. Maybe he did. But I'm saying maybe we should uh, take a look at our motives in this. Christ's nature is reflected in us when we're willing to sacrifice our own selfish motives for the good of others. Listen, we need to sacrifice our own selfish motives when we have arguments too. I'm sure you've never done this, but I've been in arguments where I was more concerned about how I looked to outside observers than I did about whether I was convincing someone of truth. And so I was willing to be more sarcastic. I was willing to be more biting in my comments. And you know why? Because I wanted everybody else that saw it to know how smart I am. Does that reflect Christ? Christ's ministry. I am tempted to be proud to think I am smart at times. Until I recall... That the creator of the universe wrapped himself in human flesh and spoke with humans on an even keel. If anyone had the right to be sarcastic and condescending and biting, it would have been Christ. And yet he tells us, don't do it. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Man, I wish I could tattoo this on, on our minds today. Christ's love is confrontational. It is. Our view of love in this culture is very much like the view in Corinth. Don't tell anybody what they're doing is wrong because that's loving. That's hogwash. And frankly, unfortunately, many of the Christian churches in our day have swallowed that down. It's, it's nonsense. Christ's love is confrontational. Christ was confrontational. But he was confrontational in a loving way. Just because you confront sin does not mean you're not loving. 
Let me tell you what the most unloving thing you could do is. If there is such a thing as an eternal hell, and someone who does not have Christ will spend eternity in that hell, and you know that's the, that's the road they're headed on, the most unloving, the most selfish thing you could do is not say anything. And a lot of times we do that because we're scared if we bring up the conversation, it's going to cost us part of our precious social standing. Well, gosh, if I, if I bring that up, they'll be mad at me. I might not get that promotion at work. Oh, that's more important than their soul. Good. That's good thinking. Definitely got that from the scripture, didn't we? I'm telling you, I've been there. I don't want to bring that up. It's going to make people mad. And my boss is, is not going to be happy with me. And, and I'm not going to fit into that, that, that group at work or that group at school. They're, they're going to hold me at arm's distance, right? They're going to hold me out. I'm going to be ostracized for this. So you're telling me you love yourself so much, you're willing to let someone else go to hell without hearing the gospel so that you can retain your social standing? That's not love. It's not love. That's loving ourselves. You know what Hebrews says? It says this about Christ. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We often fail to confront sin, evil, or error because we love ourselves so much. On the one hand, we'll say that we hate it. Do we really hate wickedness? Do we really? Do we hate it enough to say something about it? Even if it costs us our social standing? That's hating wickedness. Do you hold back discipline from our children because they might get upset at us for it? Well, I want them to love me. If you're a parent, you darn well know that is something you have struggled with at some point. All of us have. All of us want our kids to think the world of us. I want my son and daughter to think I hung the moon. That's just part of human nature. And so when they do something that's wrong, I, I am tempted not to say anything because they're going to be mad at me after I spank their behinds. They're not going to be happy about it. Now the question is, do I love them or do I love myself? Proverbs thirteen twenty four says this, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That's a problem in the church today, and nobody's talking about it. And I'm just going to jump right into it. We need to be the ones who are disciplining our children. It is an, it's absolute nonsense when the kids, wherever it is, at the school or at the lunch or at the wherever it's at, the, the ones that are the worst, the ones that are causing the most problem, come out of a Christian home. What does that say to a watching world? You know what our excuse is? Well, you know, you can do what you can, but that just is not. sometimes you just can't do anything about it. Well, sometimes you just didn't do anything about it. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. No, if you beat him with the rod, you will deliver his soul from hell. That is inspired Holy Scripture, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. That's tough, man. That hurts. I'm serious. I don't want my kids to be mad at me, and they are. When I paddle their behinds, they're mad. They're not, they, are, they are not happy. They do not think that's a loving thing for me to do to them, do they? Did you think it was loving for your dad to do it or your mom to do it? Probably not. And yet 20 years down the road, you look back and go, man, I'm glad they did. Let me tell you what you do if you do not discipline your children. You are teaching them that they can break the law without consequence. 
And then 15 years later, when you're trying to explain the gospel to them and they cannot wrap their mind around the idea that people who are sinful should be punished for it, where do you think they pick that up at? We're working on about generation four or five now that has learned that from our culture. And people have a tough time in the Christian church today understanding substitutionary penal atonement. You know why? Because they've grown up in a place where there was no consequence for their behavior. And now they can't understand how in the world well, a good loving God would punish me? No, he would. That's not loving. Because that's what they've seen. You know who felt them? We did. It's time for us to learn what love really is again. And sometimes love is confrontational. Sometimes love has to be tough. Do we stay quiet because of problems we see in our relationships? Well, it's going to be tense. We shy away from tough conversations because they'll be uncomfortable. That's not love. It's not love. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to just skip ahead here. I want you to skip up here. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. How in the world? Paul is talking about love for all of these verses, 10 verses here, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about growing up. That doesn't make sense. I, I can remember reading through here and going, I, I don't even know. Why is that there? That's so weird. It's kind of out of the blue. He's talking about being a child. And yeah, that's Paul's way of being nicely saying to the Corinthian believers, hey, guys, it's time to grow up a little bit. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I spoke like a child. I reasoned like a child. You know how ch- children reason? It's all about them. What can I get out of this deal? How does this benefit me? How is this going to get me ahead? In every child's view, they are the center of the universe. And everything should be revolving around them. And you know what Paul is saying? It's time to grow up. You know what happens when you grow up and you become a a dad or a mom? Things are not going to be about you anymore. There is no, I'm serious when I say this, there is no one that I know that sacrifices more than my wife. There's nobody that I know. She is not a people person, and we have people in our house five or six nights a week. And they leave messes sometimes, and she cleans them up. And I'm a mess that she cleans up sometimes. I had to go all the way to Oklahoma to find a woman that could put up with me. But I did, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Lord knew, that guy needs help. <laughs> somebody's going somebody's gonna to have to take one for the team. <laughs> It'll be this lady. There's nobody I know. There is nobody that I know that sacrifices more than that. And most mothers are the same way. And you know what? Good fathers are the same way too. You know what? So should we. We should be willing to sacrifice of ourselves for the body of Christ. It shouldn't be just about us. It shouldn't be about what we can get out of it. It shouldn't be about what things will make life better for me. Hey, I'll be a part of that church. Will, will I get a, a good position that really makes me look impressive? Hey, hey, I'll go here and I'll be part of this company. Can I get the can I get the can I get the raise? Hey, I'll be a part of that team because I'll be the superstar there. Is that your thinking? Sadly, much of the time as Christians, we want our kids to be involved in things where they can be the superstar. And there's much better lessons for life built out of not being the superstar. Everybody can be on the team when they get to be this, the shining star. Can you be on the team where you're the one that doesn't get any recognition? Because those are people, believe it or not, those are people who make lasting impact for Christ.
They're the ones who are willing to go and make disciples. They're the ones who are willing to go and explain the scriptures. They're the ones that are willing to go lay their lives down for others, other believers, and they never have a book written about them. They never have an article written about them. At the risk of embarrassing them, I don't know any other people who sacrifice the way that some of the men here do. I think you'd be amazed if you would follow Justin Wright around for a week, or Ronnie Qualls around for a week, or Randy Tyler around for a week. I think you'd be amazed if you'd follow Darren Jolly around for a week. I think you'd be amazed at how much these people are willing to sacrifice for other people that are the body of Christ simply because those other people are the body of Christ. I've got news for you. They don't make big money from the church. (laughs) There's not people, they don't see themselves on TV. There's not people writing books about them. Except for one. There's a book of life. There's a crown that's stored up. And it's worth the sacrifice. Church, I'm telling you, I love you. And I'm telling you this. It's time for us to grow up a little bit. It's time for us to grow up in the way that we love. There's a lot of us that know some really good theology, and I'm glad that we do. But there's still a portion that doesn't make, it it doesn't matter if you know all of that theology, if you're not walking in love. You need to walk in, and so do I, in a Christian kind of love in a Corinthian culture. And I know that's challenging, but that's the challenge that Christ has laid out for us. He is sovereign. He's put us in this culture. He knew what what we would be in and how we would grow up before time began. And he's asked us to go, therefore, and be his representatives, literally his ambassadors to a culture that thinks they know what love is and has no idea. And it's your job to be that. And I'm asking you, come with me, because I've got to grow up too. Let's take the journey together. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, even though it's convicting and it hurts. It's painful, but it's cleansing. Father, I ask, let us grow up in the way that we love. Let us learn to be better ambassadors for you. Not just knowing all the right things, but but walking walking out love in a Corinthian culture. I thank you for it, Lord. I ask you to be with us, Lord, as we, uh, we have this meal today, Lord, that you would bless the food and bless those that labored to prepare it, um, that sacrificed of themselves to prepare all the food and bring it up here and take care of, a lot of times, kids on the way. Father, I just ask you to be with us as a body. Let us be willing to lay down our lives for one another in service. I thank you for it, Lord, that uh, the many who have done that already and continue to do it on a, a daily basis. It's in Christ's name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. May the Lord be with you. May He bless you and keep you this week. May He remind you of His Word. In Jesus' name.